everybody. Welcome back to Gamblers and Thieves, our new Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Nia. Hi, I'm Eve. And uh, yeah, we've announced many times that we were covering all the films of David Lynch, but uh, I'm 20 minutes into the first episode of DS9 as we record, and uh, I've decided we're pivoting to DS9 podcasting. Yeah. Um, I think you're on board with it. I don't think you have any objections, right? No. I, love, I mean, I haven't, I haven't watched the first episode yet, so that'll be slightly weird for the. the first yeah, episode. you're like partly into it, so it'll be slightly weird for the dynamic. I mean, I've watched the first episode previously, but like the last time I watched through all of Deep Space Nine was maybe like three, four years ago. Um, I think it was in my current apartment, so it must have been like three years ago. Maybe f- we've been here a while. Now that I think about it. You know, I started this as just like a little jokey intro to the podcast. Genuinely, like after we finished Twin Peaks, like this is a ways down the line. I could imagine us being like, hey, I want to do another TV like stairwell spinoff. We could easily do a DS9 podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Even in the first 20 minutes of the first episode, I'm like, I see how Nia and I can just talk about this once a week for, you know. I have fondness for, like, the original series, and um, The Next Generation is great. I I enjoy it. Uh, but I wouldn't be able to just, like, talk about it at length in the same mm. way that I think I just could with Deep Space Nine, because I just have seen Deep Space Nine so many times. Um, like, all the rest I kind of saw, like, when they were airing. Like, I've never sat down and been like, I'm going to watch... The next generation. I was just mm. alive at a time when it was on TV, and so I would watch it on TV all the time. Right. Um, whereas that's how I first watched Deep Space Nine, and then I've like rewatched it multiple times intentionally, um, including showing it all to to Emily. So, um, oh god, there's this episode. It's like late season. I'm so excited for you to get to it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I just finished watching. I just finished watching season six of TNG, which has conveniently ended on kind of a. I don't know if this is going to be controversial. T- TNG season six has ended on one half of a kind of bad two parter. And so I was initially like, ah, am I going to finish that two parter and then go to season one of DS9? What am I going to do? The end of season six of TNG, season six of TNG is fucking phenomenal. Great season of television, but that last episode, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <clears throat> I'm just, now I'm going from season six of TNG to season one of DS9. Then I'll go back, finish, uh, TNG. I'm doing like kind of, sort of release order, you know, um, and yeah, just 20 minutes in, I'm just like enjoying the premise of this show. I'm enjoying the uh, uh, characters and I'm looking forward to a serialized show because I know that's like the big thing that uh, DS9 does is it, you know, has, you know, things that continue from episode to episode as opposed to like the quasi anthology series that is TNG. <clears throat> yeah, like it, it does move into... There, there's more that like continue, but also it is still like, oh, here's the hollow deck episode or whatever. Like that stuff still happens. Yeah, um, it's it's still the '90s. Like 
yeah. there's still like a limit to how much you can do this, you know? Yes. Um, and, and honestly, like I prefer it that way where, um, you do have this connective tissue, but like there, there's still just, this is what the episode is about. Even if mm-hmm. like stuff is sort of continuing like in the broader plot, um, that like almost like the, the broader plot is like the B plot often, you know? Yeah. And not like the actual A plot of the episode. <laughs> I mean, this is like the exact type of TV that like both that I grew up watching in the sense of like it was on TV when I was a kid and also like when the streaming when I was a teenager and streaming stuff was just taking off, this was the exact sort of stuff that I was watching all the time. Like this is how I watched 7 seasons of Buffy, which is a show where there are lots of threads that connect to one episode to the next, but there are lots of times where it's like, this is the episode where Buffy fights Dracula, you know? Yeah. Um, that's actually a really funny one to point out for this, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Weird plot stuff happens in the Dracula episode, but like, not in a way that matters. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, this is Ornate Stairwells. Uh, I'm Autumn. That's Nia. Um, we wanted to do kind of a shorter episode. So um, what movies have you watched this week? I haven't looked at the spreadsheet at all. I, I know that I can be pretty quick on almost everything that I watched. Yeah, I guess I can just do the movies that I did. And then when I get to the last one, it'll be one that we both talk about. Um, yeah, sounds good. And then good. we can get into the, the other. You have like two movies, I think, right? Unless there's more to add on. Yeah. Um, um, the only movie to add on for me is the one that we both watched. So, independently. Um, oh, that's in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to double check my my thing and see if I miss anything. But, yeah. Uh, so, the main thing I did is I watched, like, f- half of the Fast Saga, um, including, I guess, like, the 10th one that's not out yet. Uh, but... Actually, it is half, even with you, if you don't include that because of the Hobson Shaw thing. Anyway, um, this is a thing I think I mentioned on last episode. Uh, I have a lot of affection for this series. I have seen, like, Tokyo Drift just a countless number of times. Um, and then the rest, like, some of them I've seen a couple times. Um, some of them I've only seen once previously. Um, especially as it went on, I started seeing them in theaters. Uh, I did not see... So, I think... Uh, the eighth one is the last one that I saw. And then I didn't see um, Hobbs and Shaw because I heard it was bad. I'm going to watch it as part of this uh, just to like have it. Um, and I haven't watched the ninth one because that came out during a pandemic and I didn't want to go to a theater. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm halfway through. I went through Fast Five, which uh, I tried to make sure to get in because I knew you would have Fast Five as well. And then we could talk about it. Um but hell yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, I will kind of run through like quick thoughts on some of these and, and maybe linger a little bit. Christ. Um, I forgot something. You go. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, so obviously the first movie, the fast and the furious, um, this one I have seen a couple times previously. Mm -hmm. Um, like not just once, uh, because there's something kind of delightful going back to it. Like once this has become a a big established franchise and just being like, 
this? <laughs> like it's a yeah. like it's a fun movie, but you watch it and you're like, how did this get to be like the massive franchise? This well, is well, like like there are so many movies in 2000 that were just like that could have been it, you know? Mm-hmm. And like this, you... it's a it's a good fun movie, but like there's nothing about this that if you compare to other movies of like roughly this time. You're like that's the one that's going to turn into the massive like extended uh, franchise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I had a thought about this, but um, I think it ties more into Fast Five actually. So I'll, I'll save it for yeah. a minute. But yeah, I I like that first movie a lot. I don't know if you only watched that first movie, like. And you had no context for what this was. And then I told you that there were 10 more movies after this. You'd be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then if I told you it has a, like, cast comparable in size to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you'd be like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's also, it's bizarre because you are watching it and, like, the thing that's different when you watch Iron Man is mm-hmm. that they are planning to make a franchise out of this. Now, yes. the franchise that comes out of it ends up being far larger than Iron Man is conceiving of. Like, yes. Iron Man feels like it's just prepared for, like, we're going to build up to an Avengers movie. And then it's right. it's such a success that, like, this just becomes what uh, Hollywood cinema is right now. Um this, like, has no idea that it is going to be a franchise. It is not trying to set things up in any sort of way. Um, mm-hmm. Beyond just the, like, normal, eh, we'll throw in something that could maybe be a sequel hook that just, like, was common for movies at the time. Right. Um, but so many movies did that. Um, and now I'm going to say the thing that people will roll their eyes at me for. Uh, which is, so I will joke that the Fast and the Furious is the closest that, like, modern American movies have to a Yakuza movie franchise. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, uh, you know, Yakuza movies uh, noted for having, like, a large cast uh, of uh, actors um, who sometimes in Yakuza movies will, will play multiple roles throughout the, the run of the franchise because some character will die and they'll bring them back. We'll get to the way that, that Fast and the Furious handles that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, a, a lot of it is focused around, like, one, there's, like, this sort of tension between, like, what is your duty versus, like, your humanity and your connection to uh, usually some other, like, blood brother, like, Aniki, um, or, you know, say, the relationship that exists between Paul Walker's character and Vin Diesel's character. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you just think of the cops as, like, another crime family, uh, yeah. really, the, uh, the, the first one is, like, where the... If you told me, like, I I don't believe that this is how this movie conceived of, but if someone said to me, oh, like, this was actually, like, somebody had this script, they were trying to do, like, a, a Yakuza movie in the U.S., they were trying to, like, adapt the plot of one, and event it went through, like, multiple rewrites and got punched up and turned into a movie about cars, I would believe you. Because so much of the core of the first movie is, like... Paul Walker has this loyalty to the the crime family of being a cop. <laughs> right. Um, like, you just transpose it into the American understanding of 
what are the like two things that would be at odds in this way and would have this sense of like loyalty and hierarchy uh the police and then a crime family um but then is like does not want to actually fulfill the duty that is expected him of him to bring in Vin Diesel because he has this like brothership connection with him. Um, and as the, the movies go on, he is going to like leave his crime family of the police to join the crime family that is Vin Diesel's, which is a thing that will just happen in Yakuza movies is like, eventually the, you'll, resolve that tension by just having them become a part of the same family um and then other things can happen throughout that you know um Mm. but like the first one is like so intensely like one is like very intensely about family and in this way that feels akin to how family is used and talked about in yakuza movies which is like not blood family but like not blood family in the like actual genetic sense, but in the like we are brought together through blood, both of like some sort of ritual, um, but also like through the fact that we like sweat and bleed together, you know? Um, right. So yeah, the I I really enjoy the first Fast and the Furious movie because of how much I just watch it, and as someone who's like turbo. Uh, cursed Yakuza just brain because like I watch so many of these movies. I'm just like, oh, I just know what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, the Too Fast, Too Furious comes out. Um, it's by John Singleton, and it that like, was the thing that I forget. Yeah, I forget it's a John Singleton movie. Too Fast, Too Furious rocks. Mm-hmm. I don't like it as much as the original, and I think some of it is, um. I think the series is going to like refocus on this idea of family more clearly. That's like set up in the first one, but in this one, it's like, there's something special about having that connection. That's like, we are at, uh, like a cross warring size, but we have this like kinship, um, that often you don't see in a lot of American cinema. And what too fast Too furious does is it basically just adapts like a buddy cop film into it. But then they like put in a little bit of like, Oh, you have this connection to, to Vin Diesel. Um, right. As like a little bit of attention, but like the tension in it isn't really about Paul Walker and Vin Diesel in the way that I want it to be. It is more mm-hmm. like, Oh, we are buddy hops. Um, and that's like more of the focus of it. Uh, and that, even though, like, it's still really fun and um, electric in that way, like, I just feel like there are there are other, like, American buddy cop movies that I would watch before this um, if this wasn't just, like, part of the Fast and Furious franchise. But, um... Right. <clears throat> then we get to Tokyo Drift. Um, Let's fucking go! Yes. <laughs> Which we did talk about last time. Um, I do think, like, this is far and away my favorite in the series. I love Tokyo Drift a lot. Um, like, other movies will also get closer. Like, Fast Five is also really good, and we will get to Fast Five. I still think I just prefer Tokyo Drift. Um, part of this is what's going to happen in, like, the following movies is this, like, extra layer of seriousness gets applied to everything because 
like Hollywood cinema is just getting more grim dark in general. Uh, mm-hmm. Tokyo Drift is allowed to like just exist in like pure joy. Um, it's so everything fun. is just fun in it. Yes. Um, there's like no part of it that is not like kind of almost in on the joke of itself and just having fun with it. Um, mm-hmm. and then also it just greatly, greatly benefits from the fact that I think drifting one drifting is fucking cool. I like, I think that drifting is cooler than going fast in real life. I also think that drifting like is conveyed better on the screen than going fast. Um, yes. because Going fast, just fun. Like at a certain point, portraying going fast involves just like speed blurring backgrounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like for a long time, cinema has even faked going fast by like under cranking and stuff. Um, right. Drifting is like you're you are fundamentally seeing a car do something that you do not see it do in like your normal daily life. Um. Because just, like, drifting cars move in bizarre ways when they drift. At, like, f- as someone who normally drives and you think about driving, like, any time that your car starts doing that, you're like, well, I'm fucked. <laughs> um, and to, like, watch someone, like, intentionally do it to maintain speed around, like, a really tight corner um, is just always incredible. Um Yeah. One of my favorite little moments in it is when uh, Bama Boy is trying to learn how to drift, uh, and he's, like, in this closed course, like, bumping into a bunch of, you know, they've got, like, uh, those barrels and things, uh, and there's just a guy, like, sitting there, fishing, watching, and is, like, pff, like... He'll, that, he'll never learn to drift or something like that. And that man is the man who invented drifting. They got him in the movie to sit there and be like, look at this. Look at this guy trying to learn how to drift. <laughs> it's so <laughs> um, fun. Uh, also, Sonny Chiba's in it, and I'm always just happy to see Sonny Chiba. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's such a Wolf delight. guy himself. <laughs> Wolf guy himself. <laughs> the Street Fighter, they call him. Yeah. Um. Only in the one Battles Without movie that we watched for this podcast. But, I mean, I guess he's in one of the new Battles Without as well. Can I I read to you something from the Too Fast, Too Furious Wikipedia page real quick? Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) No, I... I am uh, recovering from being sick. I feel mostly fine, but I I just feel like I'm going to be, like, snotty and coughing for, like, a week still. Um, yeah. It's just one of those kind of sicknesses where it like doesn't want to leave, especially because I have asthma. So I'm going to take a little break and like um, have a Ricola while you talk. <laughs> Vin Diesel was offered $25 million to, re- to return in the sequel as Dominic Toretto. However, he refused after reading the screenplay as he felt that its potential was inferior compared to that of its predecessor. Rather, he chose to appear in The Chronicles of Riddick instead. <sighs> According to Variety magazine in 2015, he was less taken with what the screenwriters had in mind for the film. Quote, they didn't take a Francis Ford Coppola approach to it. They approached it like they did sequels in the 80s and 90s, when they would drum up a new story unrelated for the most part and slap the name on it. However, Diesel reflected on his decision in a July 2014 report from Uproxx saying, 
I would have said don't walk away from it just because the script uh, sucked in Too Fast, Too Furious, because there's an obligation to the audience to fight, no, wa- no matter what, to make that film as good as possible. <laughs> um, do you know how he ends up in, in Tokyo Drift? Uh, well, I, I remember he's basically in the, like, you know, Nick Fury scene, but, like, is there a story behind yeah. that? Well, so, um, basically, like, that was not in the script. It was, like, literally towards the very end of filming. They were like, wouldn't it be funny if mm. <laughs> if Vin Diesel showed up uh, yeah. as, like, Han's old friend? Um, and... Like, it's it's so funny that this thing that was just decided, like, very last minute about Tokyo Drift, um, like, creates all these other problems as Justin Lane continues to direct these movies and has got to get his boy in here. <laughs> Can I read um, to you a sentence from the Tokyo Drift Wikipedia page, unless I'm interrupting you? No, you can do this. Following test screenings of The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, Universal still felt it needed a star cameo. Vin Diesel agreed to reprise his role as Dominic Toretto for a brief cameo in exchange for Universal's ownership rights to the Chronicles of Riddick series and the character in lieu of financial payment. Bro, That's right. (laughs) That's right. He owns the rights to that now. Because he showed up in Tokyo Drift. I forgot about that. That's so delightful. morons gave him that? He's in the movie for a minute. (laughs) The people who agreed to that deal should be fired. Are you kidding me? (laughs) That man made two video games and like seven more movies based on dog shit. (laughs) Because he's like, I own this. That's the only reason that shit exists now, because Vin Diesel wants to get paid. Um, (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) But So the other thing I really like about Tokyo Drift, and this will not prove to be what the series is, but when Tokyo Drift came out, there was this feeling in me that, like... This could be a series not about a a stable of characters, despite the Vin Diesel cameo at the end. Mm. But that is about, like, trying to do various uh, stories that are primarily connected through this, like, sense of, like, through cars and through how cars are, are freeing and, like being able to go fast and and travel in a car is like a a fundamental American idea of freedom and things that would like explore that Um, and put it in different contexts and things. This is not what fast and the furious becomes, Um, but Tokyo drift, like there's the the part where they are um, driving at night and they are just like talking about how it feels to drive. And I'm like, that could have been what the series is. Uh, that would have been a lot of fun. Um, I would kind of enjoy like the alternate version where we, you just start getting a bunch of like different stories with different casts of characters that can have like slightly different um, genre tones and things like that. But uh, instead, this is, instead we get Fast and Furious, the fourth one. So <laughs> <laughs> um, this movie sucks. Uh, 
it's it's trying like so hard to be serious and it's in that like self-serious tone where it's not working and you can't even really laugh at it or like like it's trying to take itself too seriously in a way that um is like sapping joy out of it rather than like giving anything to the work um especially after you watch Tokyo Drift and just like the music is like constantly bumping and so much of Fast and Furious is just like who did the soundtrack for it was it Howard Shore who did Fast and Furious soundtrack oh I have no idea the worst part is I'm going to type in Fast and Furious soundtrack and I don't know if it's going to give me the movie that I want because they (laughs) gave it the dumbest name (laughs) No, I don't want the Fast and the Furious soundtrack. Here we go. Um, Brian Tyler. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just... Like, there's still some, like, bumping moments, but uh, it's just... It's trying to be so somber, and the only time that it... Also, it, it really utilizes a lot of, um, like, CG effects for the car stuff, because... Now that Justin Lin doesn't have drifting, which is just like fundamentally exciting to watch cars do, and you can just do a thing about racing where, where cars drift and it's fun to watch. Um, in order to make it exciting when the cars go fast, you have to have like people jumping between cars and like doing right. heists on high speed vehicles and things like that. Um, which Fast Five is going to figure out how to do like and make it fun and exciting. Fat, uh, Fast and Furious, the, the fourth movie, has not figured this out. Um, the 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 very beginning of it is the most fun, where you do get like the this um, heist where they're trying to like basically steal tankers off of the back of a really long tanker truck, uh, and then it goes bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the the climax of it is like so CG dependent that the it like saps some of the excitement because you're just so aware of it as like a CG artifice thing rather than an actual cool car stunt. Um, but yeah, the, the other, like the, the one part where it works because they are using this like CG effect to, uh, do it and they are doing the somber tone, but it's like coming together and hitting in the right way, uh, is a part where Vin Diesel, um, this character, Dominic, uh, he is, he goes to the crash site of, uh, the Letty's death. Uh, Letty died supposedly. Um, we will find out in Fast Five that maybe this is not true. Um, I guess spoilers for the Fast and the Furious series, but, um, and so goes to the crash site and it's like, mind palace like envisioning the crash like looking at the skid marks and then you like get the like (laughs) cg like fading in of the car driving on it and then like passing through his body as he turns to watch how it like flipped over here or whatever um and it's it's still like self-serious and what makes it good and fun is not what it thinks is like it it thinks they're just being powerful and it's not it's just like goofy in a way that's hitting right Um, but yeah, so much of the rest of it is just like, it's also so, and I, I watched these pretty rapidly. So I like very recently saw the first movie, but it's like trying so hard to be the sequel to the first movie, uh, like really directly 
and it came out eight years later. <laughs> yeah. Um. It, yeah, it's just it's weird. Um, I don't recommend it unless like you really do just want to watch through all of the movies. But like, you know, you can go from Tokyo Drift to Fast Five, and um, you don't even miss the part where Paul Walker decides to leave the police because that basically is, I think, the start of Fast Five. <laughs> so, um. Like, I don't even know if you get really get it at the end of Fast and Furious. But anyway, Fast Five, I'll, I'll let you start talking about this and then I can chime in. <clears throat> yeah, so um, Molly and I watched Tokyo Drift uh, last week and this week we just skipped four because she hates it. Um, and Fast Five is funny as shit because um, it's a year until The Avengers comes out. But already, like, Justin Lin has seen the future of cinema and he has decided to make the Avengers. <laughs> it's. And to be fair, like, you know, this is a year away from the Avengers, which means the MCU is, like, well underway. Like, I, I don't think he was some prophet, you know, oh my God, who could have foreseen the Avengers? But he yeah. did just make the Avengers a year before the Avengers. <laughs> And uh it's good. It's real good. Uh it's better than the fucking Avengers, I tell you that for free. Um and um <clears throat> Yeah, it's just like it's weird because it's like a bloated movie and it um <clears throat> it's bloated and it doesn't it loses sight often of what makes these movies good but it succeeds i think in spite of that because fundamentally heists are cool and like that can just sort of carry you through like a lot of stuff not really working in the movie yeah for me like i wanted way more han i didn't get more han i wanted way more (laughs) paul walker i didn't you don't really get much paul walker you know yeah like Two or three scenes of... So, so much of the Fast and Furious franchise is about, like, <clears throat> thinking through, like, what is masculinity in the 2000s? It is, um, like, car culture. It is, um, like, money. It is um, getting bitches. It is, like so much of this is about masculinity and like this sort of like intense like need to be masculine at all times to where the 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 thing that really makes fast five work is the scene of like dom and paul walker hanging out um the night before the heist and Paul Walker is like, bruh, I'm scared of being a dad. And Vin Diesel's being like, you're going to be a good dad. My dad was like, went to church every Sunday and that's what good fatherhood is. And Paul, Paul Walker is like, yeah, my dad was just like some dude who worked in an office and was never around. Now we figured out what being a bad dad is and we have to go do a heist. (laughs) 
Yeah. And like, it sounds silly when I describe it, but it really fucking works. You yeah. Know? It, it works because it is like a, a strange breaking of everything else being this idea of masculinity that is all about like the things that you own in a way where like women also kind of get folded into that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it, th- it just becomes this like sudden moment of like, man, how the fuck do I be a dad? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it doesn't have like great insight into it, but it is just like, uh, it, it's good to like, see that moment where all that other stuff kind of falls away. And it's just like, no, I'm just like, worried because my dad sucked and i don't want to be like my dad (laughs) and it's good because like it feels like oh someone knew that this is what the series is about you know there's like like every marvel movie has the bit um where the good guy and the bad guy talk and um the bad guy is like i think the military industrial complex is bad and the good guy says it is, but I'm going to kill you for it. <laughs> um, and you're like, does anybody know what movie they're making? I don't think anybody knows what movie they're making. Whereas, like, like Dom and Paul Walker talking about fatherhood is like, oh, they do know. Like, they get yeah. what the Fast and the Furious is. And, and, and it's it's the same as, like... All the stuff about, like, every speech that Han gives in Tokyo Drift is so, like, ridiculously, like, about this stuff and, like, over the top and, like, funny, but also, like, not funny because it, like, makes the movie work. And it's it's really good to see, like, I wish Han was giving these speeches again, but I will settle for, like, these two men just, like, having a moment where they're, like, adults. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also that moment... I think helps with there, there's this other thing and it helps like color um, in a way that then makes that work for me as well, which is they do the race and whoever like wins the race is going to get like an extra million or whatever from, from, mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the other winnings that people get. And, uh, it of course comes down to Paul Walker and Vin Diesel. They are the like two in front. Um, and then, you know, supposedly Vin Diesel like throws the the race at the last moment, um, so that like Paul Walker can get the money. Why? It's because he knows that Paul Walker is going to become a dad now. Uh, this is mm. sort of like the wedding and like the baby shower gift. Uh, you know, also taking care of like his sister who Paul Walker is, you know, having a kid with. Um, and it, it's this thing of like when it first happens, it's like still filled with all the like. Uh, machisma or machisma, machisma. How the fuck hmm. do you say? <laughs> anyway, machismo, machismo. Um, of like, haha! I I won the race, and then being like, ah, didn't you see Vin Diesel through the race? And then him being like, oh, oh, you know, my my manhood as someone who like wins the race is is now called into question. Um, mm-hmm. but then like once that gets colored by the scene of talking about like you're gonna be a good dad and all of that it then like gets imbued with more of this like no there's like there is an actual willingness to like like there's a willingness on vin diesel's part to take this like possible hit in like i don't win the race 
for right. like the sense of family. Um, and it, I mean, none of this is like incredible, uh, insightful stuff. I mean, it's a fun action movie, but like it does just make that stuff work. Um, yeah. In a way where, again, it feels like someone, like, understands what the movie is primarily about. Um, also, also, they switch the vaults. It's fucking yes. sick. <laughs> so that's the thing, too, is you're watching it, because they're, they're doing this whole elaborate, like, we need to get a car that can go fast enough and someone who can, like, drift in it fast enough to do the, this, like, hairpin so that the camera, like, going back and forth, uh, is not going to see the car so that we can get in. And, like, there's, like, all of this, like, the planning around the heist. And then there's this moment where, like, a bunch of it just gets thrown out the window because uh, The Rock comes in and fucks things up for them. And now they have to, like, scramble and, and just, like, do it this, like big explosive way rather than this whole sneaky way they've been doing. And there's this moment of, like, letdown being like, ah. Oh, I just watched them like plan this whole sneaky heist and I don't get to see them pull it off. And then there's just the, the like care, like towing the vault. It's driving. So and you're like, this is wild. And then there's the whole like, Oh yeah, we'll leave the vault with you. And then it's empty. And then they reveal how they switch the, the vault. And you're like, Oh, like, I don't care about how the fact that you didn't pay off basically anything that you spent an hour and a half setting up because this is great. <laughs> It's so, so good. Uh, I do want to, because I, I agree there needs to be more Han in here. Uh, it's funny how little Han there is in Fast and Furious. Um, especially <clears throat> because it like they have to reference it then in this movie, which is basically they very, like, Vin Diesel and Han very briefly hang out, and they stand on a rooftop or something. Um, mm-hmm. And Han's just like... Yeah, I've been thinking about going to Tokyo. And that's, like, it. Like, <laughs> Justin Lin just, like, wrote a cameo, it seems like, for his friend so that his friend could get some more of that Fast and Furious money. Which, like, I would also... Justin Lin, I would also do this. I would write my friends yeah. into movies. <laughs> yeah, same. I would cast my friends all the time, especially if they were really hot. Which, uh, you know, Han is fucking hot. Um, yes, he is. He's not then, nearly as hot in Fast Five yeah. as he is in Tokyo Drift, but he's still pretty hot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so then in, in Fast Five, there's the part at the end where he's like, I forget even what he says. I think it's like the location of the next movie. I forget where he says that he's thinking about going. Um, Madrid. And then, Madrid, yeah. And then oh, Gal Gadot draped over his lap ridiculously as he's driving the car. Um <laughs> Like, in a way that just, like, there are other sex acts that people do while someone is driving. Like, lewd sex acts that you would not want to depict in a movie like this. um, That are honestly probably less distracting and, like, interfering with your ability to drive than, like, literally just having someone sit in your lap. But anyway, um, and she's like, I thought you were planning to go to Tokyo. And he's like, I'll get there eventually. Um, And it's like, yeah, I... Just write in, like, Han's gonna continue to hang out in these movies. It doesn't matter if I direct it. He's a character now. Like, (laughs) 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 Um, It's funny to me that, like, most of these people are just referred to by the actor's name, but he's so much just, like, the Tokyo Drift movie 
like characters are characters to me and yes. not just actors in a weird way yes. where I'm just like Han. <laughs> Bama boy. <laughs> um Fast Five is great though. It's good. Um I one of the other little moments with Han that I really appreciate uh is the one where um Gal Gadot points out that he must have been in, like, he must have smoked because he's always eating food and, like, trying to occupy his hands. Uh, right. I was like, that's a great little moment. It's it's cute. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, fuck her, <clears throat> but... <laughs> um, she sucks, it's right? It's really funny <laughs> that they make her ex-IDF yeah. in the movie. It's, like... <laughs> and also that, like, you know, everybody in the movie thinks, wow, she's XIDF. She's cool as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's fucking awful, but also it's funny. I'm trying to remember, because is there another reason that she sucks, or is it mostly just that one? Mostly just that one. Okay. I felt like there was some other reason that she sucked, but... Um, there might have been... She, for all I know, she could have been like, I trans people, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, Man. Okay. No. I got bummed out for a second because I I saw Sonny Chiba died in uh, 2021 due to complications from uh, COVID-19. And I was like heartbroken. I I heard the news when it happened, but I kind of forgot about it. And then I read the rest of the sentence and it was at age 82. And I'm like, well, you know. Yeah. Sometimes you're 82 years old and something's going to get you, I guess. Yeah. I still wish it wasn't COVID. I wish we'd manage yeah. that pandemic better where old people yeah. didn't die from it. But it's yeah. all, it's it's always like, especially when someone gets over 80, it's hard for me to be a, like, oh, what a loss as yes, much as my, just like looking back on all of the great things they did. Um, that, that's my grandmother died like uh, around the same time. And it's like very heartbroken and also like, Girl was 87, like, yeah. y- you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> anyway. It comes uh, for us I all. Some... Uh, do we want to do the, uh, it, is there a stairwell rating for Fast Five? I did uh, F question mark for the first and the second. Of course, we talked about Tokyo Drift has a plus. Uh, Fast and the Furious gets, I'm just going to do a flat C. There's a lot of stairs. There's one, like, more dramatic scene where Paul Walker runs up a bunch of stairs uh, because Vin Diesel is dangling someone out the window, and then Vin Diesel drops him, and Paul Walker, like, catches him to save his life, but then Vin Diesel's able to get away. Um, but it's also, like, a... I'll, I'll bump it back up to C+. Like, that's that's an impactful moment, but... Yeah, it was Fast weird five. how many stairs there were. Fast Five, I'm feeling like a D or a C. There definitely are stairs, but there was nothing that was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm going to give you it know? a D. Yeah. Like, it's Fast Five, like, intense, like, racist stereotyping of Brazil and Rio. Um, and so there's, like, favelas and steps everywhere as you, like, go up into favelas, but it's like... Mm-hmm. Not not never framed for drama. You yeah. Know? Oh, a thing that's funny in Fast Five is Vince shows up 
And me having seen this movie multiple times before, knowing that Vince shows up, but still just having watched through and like Vince has not shown up since the first movie, I was still like, Vince? Really? <laughs> He's the bully? That is um, that's the real like MCUification of like guy you forgot it existed, like mm-hmm. shows up and gets lines as if you do remember he exists. Um, but it did remind me, I want to mention in the first movie, uh, there's a part where Paul, where Paul Walker is hanging out at a restaurant, um, and keeps like, I think, I think this is, uh, Vin, I think this is the, like Vin Diesel's sister. What's her name? I think she's the waitress. But it's like hitting I on her. I genuinely have no idea what her name is. I think Vince was like originally dating her or wanted to date her or something. Uh, yes. Vin- part of- yes. Yeah. And so he shows up and is basically doing the like, get out of our restaurant boy thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But so Paul Walker's like sitting there at the counter and Vince walks up and Paul Walker turns and like the other people commenting are like, oh, he's pretty. And Vince like literally cannot talk for like a minute and a half, like until Paul Walker like pays and leaves and has turned his beautiful face away from Vince. And finally, Vince (laughs) is able to be like don't come back here or whatever. And then they get into a fight. Uh, canonically, Paul Walker is so like pretty that it, it leaves Vince just speechless. And then Vince (laughs) spends the rest of the movie just being like, Oh, when you're done here, pick out your favorite dress because you belong on the street, cutie. Uh, and being like, Oh, you (laughs) faggot. And so I'm just like, man, Vince, if you want to fuck Paul Walker, that's fine. Like, lots of people do. <laughs> Just go for it, Vince. Um, yeah, I. it was just, like, I was so amused by it. Anyway. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I watched some movies. I've done a ton, but a little something-something. Um, I, I guess... <clears throat> The two, like, movies I watched on my own were, well, one of these, like, we hung out and watched together, but, like, mm-hmm. the two movies I watched, I did just happen to watch, like, two movies by, like, the the best martial arts movies directors ever. Yeah. <laughs> just just by coincidence. First up, um, I watched with Nora, The Eight Diagram Pole Fighter. That movie fucking rocks. <laughs> yeah. Lauka Sorry Lung to surprise everybody. Fucking rules. <laughs> Movies that Riza has been telling you to watch since the '90s are good. <laughs> um, that movie is—it's funny because like it crystallized for me something that I think I knew without ever—I knew without ever putting words to is that, like, martial arts movies really need a guy, a capital G guy, mm-hmm. and the Eight Diagram Pole Fighter really lacks that until, like, the last 15 minutes, because there's, like, a little too much, like, plot, to be honest. Um, because, like, so for people who have not seen the Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, um, there's... This like <clears throat> group of like there there are these like sons of this noble house who all are like accomplished spear fighters. Um 
And throughout most of the movie, they're just referred to as first brother, second brother, third brother, yeah. etc. Down the line to seven, I think. And most of them are killed in the very first scene. So like that. But like. The three who survive then get lots of like, like each of them gets their own storyline, but they're all just called third brother, fifth brother and sixth brother. So I'm like, what? Who who is this one? What was he doing in the last scene? I haven't seen him in twenty minutes because the other guy got his whole plot line. Um, it it's a little too much to keep track of, and it's not great. But ultimately, I think fifth brother um joins a monastery, um, and convince his convinces like he joins a monastery because he's genuinely going through like a spiritual awakening. But the guy who's like the head of the monastery is like, you, you clearly are not going through any sort of spiritual awakening. You just want the protection of the monastery for when like for political reasons. Um, and it's really funny because that guy is like, no, I genuinely like feel this deeply in my heart. And he's right. He's telling the truth. He feels it deeply in his heart that he wants to, like, you know, embrace Buddhism and, and forsake his violent ways. But ultimately, in the last couple minutes of the movie, it's time to kick some ass and get some revenge. And he goes and defeats the head of the monastery <laughs> and convinces the rest of the monks we must abandon our pacifist ways so I can get revenge for my own shit. <laughs> and the rest of the monks are like, well, you beat our master in combat, so we have to do what you say. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fucking sick as shit and it's also in that scene that he gets like a good outfit that sort of like can distinguish him in a crowd and so you're like oh there's a guy the movie has a guy now <laughs> yeah um he's the eight diagram pole fighter <laughs> um also, um, in the last, like, 20 minutes, it gets way more gory than the rest of the movie has spent. <laughs> like, comically over the top. Like, even for me, who has, like, a strong constitution when it comes to these things, like, oof, that's a little rough to watch. I guess, caveat, if you uh, listen to the episode and, and want to go watch this, I will just let you know that um, the monks that, that he goes and trains with... Um, their whole thing, because they're pacifists, is they train on these, like, wooden, like, <clears throat> these wooden, like, dog, like, things, you know? Yeah. And they train, what they're tra training to do is to, like, break the dog's teeth. Because they live in the mountains, and there are wild wolves in the mountains, and they're like, if we if we encounter a wolf, we don't want to kill a wolf. What we want to do is we want to make it so it can't hurt us, and so we get rid of the teeth. Which, never mind the fact that if you take the teeth out of a wild animal, it will just die anyway, because it needs yeah. to get food somehow. Also, never mind the fact that a defanged wolf still has claws. Anyway... <laughs> Never mind that fact, because the reason this actually matters is that in the last scene of the movie, all the monks go and start kicking ass, and they do it by ripping out dudes' teeth. <laughs> like, dozens and dozens of dudes get their teeth ripped out, and then you just get, like, shots of them just, like, 
coughing up like red corn syrup. It's, it's ridiculous and it's gruesome and it's so much fun. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. One of the things I'm like looking at this and wondering, um, because I also looked up like who are some of the other brothers. Because this Wikipedia article I'm looking at says that fifth and sixth son are the the two who survive. Um, but some of this is like, like there's like a a director of movies and like fight choreography who's like one of the other ones who dies early on and stuff. So one of the things that happens in some of these movies um, is you get the ones that the there are ones where it's like it's all this guy. There's the guy. Mm-hmm. There's other ones where it's like you have a cast of like five or six people, and if you're just watching these like Hong Kong action movies at the time, by the time you get there, you're like, yeah, I know all of these guys, you know? Yes, I but extremely. It- <laughs> so the, this movie does something very fun. It does the um. Oh, I forgot. It does the battles without thing, and every time it introduces a new character, it'll, like, freeze frame on him for a second, and it'll show you his name, and it'll also tell you, um, parenthetically, the actor playing him, um, which is a lot of fun. And so it's very fun when you, you're introduced to the Seven Brothers, and, and it's just, like, there's a panning shot, and it's, like, Gordon Liu as Fifth Brother, so-and-so as... And I recognize most of the names, and then... You know, five of them die in the first scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's also a lot of fun because um, there's like a little like side story. I forget how this ties into the movie at all. But at some point, like the fifth, fifth brother is like on the run in the mountains. And he runs into this like guy who's just like lives in the mountains and is a hunter, basically. And it flashes on the screen. Hunter played by Lao Kar Lung. <laughs> Yeah. And then you get to see Lau Carlong kick a dude's ass. <laughs> um I was also looking at uh cuz um Alexander Fu, also known as Fu Shang, um is the sixth brother, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and I was like, I know I've seen some stuff with him and I was looking through uh like what movies has he been in? And I guess uh this was his final film role when he was alive, and then the next year, released uh, posthumously, was one that he directed called Wits of the Brats. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't have a link on it on uh, Wikipedia, so it might be hard to find, but <laughs> I'm intrigued. Oh, he's in Shaolin Temple, a.k.a. Death Chamber, from 1976. I think I've yeah. seen Shaolin Temple. Um, I might have seen Five Shaolin Masters. Some of these are so hard, too, because stuff, like, the way that things get uh, translated. Yeah. Um, like, there's so many where they want to, like, trick you into getting a different one, you know? Yeah. There's, um... Like, one of my favorite Bruce Lee movies sometimes gets localized as Fists of Fury because they're like, because the movie before it was Fist of Fury, and so they called this one Fists of Fury to try and get people to come see the sequel. 
but sometimes gets localized as the Chinese connection because the French connection uh, was a very successful movie at that same time. And they were like, oh, well, this also has a plot line about drugs. And so we can, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen Five Shaolin Masters. I think I've seen Boxer Rebellion. Um, Shaolin Temple I've seen. Uh, I've seen Chinatown Kid. Um, I'm just looking through like movies he's been in. I think those are the main ones. Oh, Legendary Weapons of China. I think I've seen that one too. Yeah, this is a Lao Kao Long one. Yeah, that's the one that I've seen. Um, yeah, if, also, I, I mentioned Lao Kao Long earlier and didn't really like introduce him. People might know him from uh, one, 36 Chambers of Shaolin. Um, yeah. A, a beloved classic. And the other one people might know is. Um, Drunken Master 2, a.k.a. Legend of Drunken Master, a.k.a. Drunken Master Remake, um, which is my preferred Drunken Master movie. Um, I like the second one a lot better. But it is just the it is the same movie as the first movie, but uh, it's weird because Jackie is like 15 years older, but still playing the same character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Doesn't matter. Jackie kicks a bunch of ass in that movie. <laughs> Speaking of Jackie kicking ass, you want to talk about the other movie we watched? Yeah, so we watched Snake and Eagle Shadow, which I've talked about previously in this podcast. Let me see if I can find the, the episode. So I feel like if people want just like a rundown of what it is, that episode's probably... Wow, we talked about so much shit on episode 42. Anyway, episode 42, uh, I talk about Snake and Eagle Shadow in between uh, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, and then you talking about Silent Hill, the video game. <laughs> <laughs> Man, remember when I played Silent Hill? That game rocks. Yeah. And then you tried Silent Hill 2, and it was Silent Hill 2 scary. It was Silent Hill 2 scary. <laughs> Um. Anyway, Snake and Eagle Shadow, fucking rules. It's it's still wild seeing young Jackie Chan to me. Um. Yeah, he's so young in Snake and Eagle Shadow. Yeah. I'm like, um, what else? Has he's he been so in? young that like they're starting to get an idea of like, oh, Jackie can like do comedy a little more than like, you know, a lot of his like a lot of. Stars who are contemporary to Jackie kind of just do, like, one or two things, and that's, like, fine, because the the one or two things they do are, like, glower at the camera and kick ass, which is what you want from the movie. But, like, yeah. Snake and Eagle Shadow feels like they're just starting to figure out, oh, Jackie could do, like, comedy, too. Okay. Let's, intru yeah. let's introduce, like, a couple comedy bits here and there, you know? But let's not, you know, rock the boat too much. Yeah. Um, God. I I was looking, being like, uh, what are other things he was in before this? And I was like, he's in Come Drink With Me as a kid? <laughs> yes, he's an actual literal child yeah. when he's in Come Drink With Me. Uh, is he part of the, he's probably part of the the musical chorus that like I follows around so. Drunken Cat. Drink with me. Um, that's funny. I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and he, like, shows up. The wild thing about looking at the filmography of Jackie Chan is that people just love this man, and so it's just, like, 
he like briefly appears in the background of this one shot, he'll be listed on the, the Wikipedia page. Yes. Um, He's like one random stunt double for like two scenes in Enter the Dragon and people like, you know, exhaustively yes. have documented that shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like this is still one of the first like big roles that he got. Um, cause a lot of the rest of this is talking about like just stuntman stuff. We, I didn't realize that this Snake and Eagle Shadow is Yun Wu Ping's first movie as director. That's yes. crazy. Yeah. No, this movie fucking rules. Um, it's kind of incredible that it's like really early Yun Wu Ping. Uh, it's early Jackie Chan. Um, but it just like it works so well. Um, yeah, Drunken Master was next. God, um, I need to. I need to go watch. Um, I'm like looking at Yun Wu Ping's page now. I need to go watch Drunken Tai Chi. I guess that's the first. That's like directed by Yun Wu Ping, and it is the first um, like starring role for Donnie Yen. And I'm like, man, I love Donnie Yen, and yeah. I, I would love to see him as like a young guy because um, I all my all the stuff I've seen of him is like after he crosses over into America, you know. Yeah, and I've seen movies that he's done here and uh in hong kong but i it's all like post him as a like huge star i would love to see him as like a really young guy yeah um that that one's really fun too because uh it's a like it, it's been a little while since i've watched it. i love this film a lot though um but like you get him like doing breakdancing and moonwalking too it's just a delightful movie um, oh you never get to see donnie yen have fun that movie's always like frowning at the screen yeah <laughs> i've gotta watch this <laughs> um anyway uh yeah i don't know if you have if you have other specific things to say about sneaking uh snake and eagle shadow um i do no. want to reiterate just for people who are not going back and listening to the other episode uh jackie chan does for real lose his tooth in the fight and then they like write in a line about how i'm gonna have your teeth or whatever um to explain why he doesn't have a tooth for a lot of the fight scene so <laughs> um <laughs> that that for real happened um I have before slowed down the, the like, done the frame by frame, and you can actually see the, like, tooth flying. Um, it's wild. Uh, the amount of just, like, uh, one of the things I think is great about Snake and Eagle Shadow is um, there people who know Jackie Chan more than me might be able to, like, correct me on this, but it, it's one of the, like, earliest films from him that I've seen that I'm starting to nail, like, what his type of character is going to be, which is he is going to be kind of the everyman who is happy to like let himself get beat up and walked over and like play sort of an imbecile or a fool for comedy. Um, and of course with the knowledge that at the end, he's going to like kick ass and be the, the big hero at the end. Um, but I feel like they're just not, especially in this like era, some of the like really big stars, um, like Bruce Lee is not going to like let a part, let there be a part where he just humiliates himself and like gets kicked right. in the butt or something like comically. Right. Um, and like, it's so funny because like so much, and I don't know if this is the narrative, uh, 
in China, but like the narrative in the U.S. is that like people were looking for like the next big star for this type of movie after uh, Bruce Lee passed, and like pretty quickly landed on like oh Jackie Chan, he's like the next big star. Um, and it's so funny to see him just like he starts that movie scrubbing floors. Bruce Lee ain't never scrubbed no floors in a movie. Yeah. I tell you that for free. <laughs> and one of the first big showcases of his, like, new powers after he learned snake style is just, like, foiling the man who's trying to make him have to scrub stuff off the floor. Um, right. By, like, still scrubbing the floor, but, like, throwing towels and stuff to, to like, block his feet because he's trying to make a mess. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's so and like even once he knows the style he's such a doofus of just like accidentally telling everybody in the world that i know this secret smile style that i'm not supposed to tell anyone about uh, yeah <laughs> and he like he pulls it out in the end but he's such a doofus about it for a while <laughs> um god great movie so when i talked about it last i looked I, I gave it an F with a question mark, but I have a question for you. We have yes. included ladders before. We have included ladders before. <laughs> and there's a great <laughs> gag where, so like the, the guy who's trying to kill everyone who knows snake style has tricked Jackie Chan into like leading him to his master because he wants to kill the master first. And then of course you can kill Jackie Chan after that. Um, and they go back to where the master's supposed to be. And it's like a closed in courtyard. And it's like, where did he go? And the, the guy who's trying to kill him immediately perceives, ah, he ran up this wall. Here's like the little spots where you can put your feet in your hands and like quickly scramble up the wall. And so he goes after him. Uh, and then Jackie Chan, like comically, like, flails and tries to run up the wall and and you know doesn't succeed uh and you're getting it like the wall is on the left side of the frame uh you know jackie chan's kind of going like running towards it but like across your your field of vision and so he backs all the way up so that he goes out of the the right side of the frame and you think he's, like, getting ready. He's like, oh, I'm going to get a good running start at this. I'm going to jump at the wall, and then I'm going to be able to climb up. Yeah, and at the exact moment that you would expect him to return just running, but in a way that does not make sense for how quickly he has acquired this, he runs back in the frame carrying a ladder and just leans it against <laughs> the wall and climbs up the ladder. It's so fucking it's so funny. Good. I fucking love him so much. Anyway, I think that's, like, worth an A. I think that's worth an A. <laughs> I'm not gonna give it an A plus, but like, it's so funny. It's such a good gag. <laughs> oh, I love this man. <laughs> oh, he's so good. Um. Anyway, on to something else that's extremely hilarious. Uh, just you know, <laughs> really busting a gut. Uh, no. Oh man, I forgot we watched the Elephant Man. <laughs> Um, sorry for all my coughs. I'm gonna try and edit out the ones that, that I can. That made it sound but... like I didn't like the Elephant <sighs> Man. We'll get we'll get into it. But no, I mean, I have to drive into work tomorrow, which means waking up at five. So, um, did we not do stairs for Eraserhead? 
I'm just uh, looking at the I guess spreadsheet. we didn't. Let's just give it an F real quick and move on because there simply were not stairs. Yeah. I remember I remember us talking about how the stairs weren't very good. Yeah. Cause you see some stairs, but no one ever uses them. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, the Elephant, the Elephant Man. Man. A movie with some fucking stairs. Um I will remind everybody once again. Um, and I keep meaning to do this at the start of the show. I will definitely do it on our Blue Velvet episode. Um, <clears throat> but from this point forward, all bets are off. If I decide to spoil the last episode of Twin Peaks The Return, that is my prerogative. I'm not yeah. saying I will do that. I'm not saying I won't do that. I will uh, do my best to t- make a note of it and put it as like a content warning in the the episode description. So now's your chance to go check and see if I did that. <laughs> but yeah, if if you do not want any any sort of Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive or whatever, if you don't want any spoilers for any future David Lynch stuff, I would recommend that you uh, go listen to Totally Reprise. Um, yeah, who it's always been there. Cool. As as we are recording, Molly is tweeting about watching uh, uh, episode nine. So they're about halfway through the return. So go listen to Reprise. And in like two months, they'll be like, you know, to, to where they can listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so far, we haven't talked about anything past episode eight. So they can listen. Yes. Right? They could listen to the Eraserhead one. Who knows about this Elephant Man so. one? But. I don't think anyway. I'm going to spoil the end of Return, but we'll, let's see where we go. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. Anyway, uh, um, I guess just to start off, have you seen The Elephant Man before? Uh, yes. Yeah. Back back in the day, uh, so again, I forget the exact timeline of this. Um, I know very early on I saw Mulholland Drive. The first Lynch movie I know was Blue Velvet. Um, and then mm-hmm. I jumped around a little, um, and I think actually what I did was I went back and I watched Eraserhead, um, the elephant man, and I don't know if I watched anything else or if I was like eager to get to like the really lynchy stuff, but I know that I watched, uh, Mulholland Drive and then, uh, was like, oh, I should watch Twin Beaks. Um, and at the time I watched through it and then like bailed partway through episode or season two, um, because I was young and foolish. Um, and then later <laughs> I went back and watched all of it. And then I, I watched all of it again with Emily. Um, so I've watched it like two and a half times. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's going to be a part, like, once we get after Twin Peaks, especially, where there's going to be Lynch movies I haven't seen. Um, yeah. There's a but, lot of the 90s stuff that I'm unfamiliar with. I had not seen The Elephant Man. Um, and so, I was really surprised by this movie in a lot of ways, and really, like, it, both, I was, I was surprised by this movie in a lot of ways, because I found it very, like, provocative and affecting, uh, and also deeply unsurprised by this is the movie I have always imagined the Elephant Man to be since I became aware of it, you know, as a cultural object. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was interesting to me. It, 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 to me, I liked this movie a lot. I also thought it was like, 
two hours and I felt like I knew the shape of it like pretty straight away and it never it never swerved in a way that really like drew me in until maybe like the last shot <laughs> you know I think yeah. I think the 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 sort of final dream sequence um is compelling and interesting but for the most part I I just thought this was like a pretty good movie you know yeah um this is also, like, compared to Eraserhead, which, like, exists in such intense stream logic at all times, but also in a way that is not, like, as fun or interesting for me as some of his later stuff is going to get, where, um, like, like, I understand some, we talked about this last time, but I understand so much about what Eraserhead just is, and what it's about, mm-hmm. even as it's, like, doing weird dream stuff. Um... Elephant Man, you get, like, more weird, evocative dream images that um, are less, like, clear and concrete, but are also, like, very explicitly within the the film demarcated as, like, a dream space. And the rest is, like, attempting to... And, and is, I think, pulling from his, like, deep love of 50s cinema. Um, but yes. is attempting to be, like, very you know, straight realist portrayal of stuff. Um, you know, still within like a, a cinematic sense of realism, but, uh, and then you get these like weird moments of, Oh, there's a strange dream, but it is like framed as a dream within the, the movie space. Um, um, I guess I'll say for, for people who haven't seen it, um, Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm I'm making Just, so many uh, gross noises over here. I don't know if you need to apologize. <laughs> um, so for people who haven't seen the movie, um, the Elephant Man is sort of loosely based on a play, which is sort of loosely based on the real life of a man um, who became known in in. Victorian British society as the Elephant Man. Um, I'm not going to concern myself too much with like anything connecting to the real world because I frankly don't know anything about it. I'm just yeah. going to talk about what happens in this movie. Um, John Merrick, um, who is Joseph Merrick in real life. Once yes. again, that's the last time I'm going to mention anything about real life. Um, <laughs> John Merrick, uh, in the fiction of the film... And we can get into this. In the fiction of the film is like his mother is assaulted by an elephant while she is pregnant. And this has left um, him deformed um, in a great many ways. He is played by John Hurt under like just about every prosthetic you could find. <laughs> um, and And he is... At the start of the film, he is um, sort of the slave of this guy named Bites, I believe, um, who is, like, using him as an exhibit at a freak show, um, and when it comes to, uh, oh, London town, um, (laughs) uh, Anthony Hopkins 
comes to see the freak show and gets like sort of interested in um interested in quote unquote the elephant man and um sort of like flexes uh, throws his weight around as a like doctor at a like respected british institution um to get uh to get Merrick taken into care of um this prestigious london hospital and this is like very controversial at first people uh <clears throat> one i think people like don't want to recognize the humanity of this uh person who like looks the way that he does uh and like wanted to be someone else's problem but they they gradually start to recognize the um the these upper class british people gradually start to in some fashion and we will dig into this uh recognize the like personhood of merrick and so decide to look after him eventually like Merrick becomes such a celebrity in the papers that, like, the Queen specifically requests that the the hospital continue to take care of uh, Merrick in perpetuity. Um, and um, there's a lot of, like, stuff that happens that we can dissect, but that's all the plot that matters. Uh, eventually, um, <clears throat> Bites catches back up with Merrick, and it... In his bitterness and his jealousy that he was sort of, he feels that he was had by Anthony Hopkins's character, whose name I'm forgetting. Treves. Um, Treves. Um, he kidnaps Merrick and takes him to France to be in a um, in a freak show once again, um, with the help of other people in the freak show. Uh, Merrick makes his escape back to England and back to the care of um, this London hospital. And um, he he makes it back and they like sort of fulfill the, a dream that he's had for a long time. And he gets to go see um, he gets to go to the theater. He gets to go see a play at the end of the play. um Someone who he admires very much, uh, this woman who's like this beloved actress in, uh, in London at the time, comes out and says, like, and everybody, you know, give a round of applause for um, for John Merrick, the elephant man who's with us this evening. And they all clap for him. And <clears throat> that evening after he gets back from the show, Merrick decides um he he is he has to sit up when he sleeps because um his condition means that like if he lays down like if he like lays down um it will like you know constrict his breathing such that he will like die in his sleep um and so that night after the play um decides to lay down um and sleep in a way that he has never been able to um and you know, ends his own life. Uh, and, um, it's sad. Yeah. I'm getting a little, like, teary just talking about it. Um, um and then the final scenes but, being, uh, a vision yeah. of his mother. Um, yes. We, we, we have gotten once or twice throughout the movie, like, dream sequences and, and, 
Um, we've gotten dream sequences and Merrick um, is a sculptor and a, a, a I want to say like a drawer, a, 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 an artist in his free time. Yeah. Um, and so um, we get taken into some of like the, the art that he's created and we see like um, <clears throat> he has a photograph of his mother and it literally does like the episode eight thing, not to always be talking about episode eight, but like <clears throat> the photo of his mother like gets enveloped in a little ball of light and then the photo and the ball of light float away and it's literally like this image will get repurposed for Laura Palmer in th- in 40 years don't worry about it yeah <laughs> um also just like a photo of a woman sitting on a nightstand that gets focused on um yes yeah uh no i so I like one of the things um well I'm trying to think of like where to start. I guess we yeah. can like go to sort of the beginning. One of the things that I think is interesting throughout the beginning um is a way that the film intentionally plays up like your desire as an audience to see like the the special effects of how do they like make this character you know but like you want to see mm-hmm. the elephant man as a spectator and it repeatedly throughout the beginning will like deny your ability to actually see him uh where you know there's the part where uh treves um anthony hopkins character uh has taken him from this like freak show to then go show him to a bunch of doctors and be like oh as you can see like here's this part that's like enlarged and you know i think it ends with like the you know the genitals are normal or whatever um like just like and like him getting stripped in front of this audience of doctors uh but from the point of view of like the camera, you just get the the silhouette of the, like, white sheep that he's, like, you know, against, basically, um, throughout that. Yes. Uh, so, like, it's kind of intentionally playing with, like, a, a certain amount of, um, I guess, like, challenging you as the spectator and your desire to also see this uh, to, like before it even goes into some of the other stuff that they're going to talk about, like, uh, give you a certain amount of like sense of complicity with the the like desire to look at this person, right? Um, and also in a way that uh, it is to some degree like playing off of monster movie tropes, even though I think this movie like doesn't play off too much from a lot of horror movie stuff. But uh, there's a little bit here of like the you get glimpses of, you know, the monster in a horror movie, and then you get the reveal. Um, right. So I think, like, there's a certain amount of intentionally playing with that uh, to... So that you as the, like, spectator, I think, have to, like, first challenge your own sense of, like, why am I watching this movie? <laughs> um, there's, like... The movie sort of moves through stages that I think are, like alternately like interesting and like 
not that interesting. Yeah. And so, like, that first stage of, like, Lynch trying to, like, implicate you as a viewer of, like, all these people want to see the freak, and you, the person watching this movie, you want to see the freak. That's why you came here. Um, yeah. You want to gawk at um, this. And I'm like, I think that's like a, I think freak is a very loaded word. Um, I think it is like an ableist word, yes. obviously. And I'm like, like, I'm using it here with like the knowledge of like, it is a, it is a fucked up word and a fucked up way to treat people. Yes. You know, um, and then the, from there, the movie moves into this moment of, ah, well, they've brought him into the hospital and now all the upper class British people want to see him. And it is sort of the same, like, freak show, but, um, we've put on the airs of, like, upper class British society. And so it's like you know, now it's respectable and now it's okay to, to go gawk at this person and to, to like objectify him. Yes. And that's like a, that's like a kind of boring moment in the movie. Um, yeah, I think, um, they're like when he's showing off to the, uh, Merrick off to all the other doctors, it's like hitting you over the head of like, Oh, these doctors are also just like doing the same thing. They're treating this mm-hmm. man the same way. Um, you know, like, uh, in order to try and get it so that Merrick can stay here, Treves, like, teaches Merrick all of these things to say because he finds out that he can, like, teach him to say things. Uh, in order to try to, like, right. create this ruse of a conversation so that the Cargom. Um, the the hospital's governor what a ridiculous british name cargom <laughs> anyway his name is cargom which coincidentally is also the name of my bounty hunter oc in um this star wars uh rpg i'm playing <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's c a r r space g o m m um anyway might as well be named club shitto <laughs> <laughs> yes um <laughs> But then Merrick ends up reciting beyond the part of the Bible that uh, Treves taught him. And then yeah. Treves is so, also surprised. So oh, Treves... you know the Bible. You must be smart and educated to know the Bible. <laughs> yes. Treves teaches him stuff and says, just repeat this back to the hospital director and we'll be fine. And the, the hospital director is like, well, you've just taught him to say things. He's just, you know... He's like a, a a monkey who knows to, to like you know clap when you give him a treat or whatever. Oh, he can do this other thing. Well, obviously he's not. You know, <laughs> now I respect his humanity because he could he can you know um, the say the Lord's prayer. <laughs> um, and, and from there it moves back into a really interesting moment in the movie where it's like the movie is sort of like Lynch. I think is questioning. So what is, what is the change here that has made it so that these upper class British people can like see Merrick's humanity. And the change is that like Merrick can sort of perform upper class British society back at them, you yeah. know, that he can be like, Oh yes, I love the theater. <laughs> and they just think that's so 
like they infantilize him and they objectify him and they they they're still they're still like coming to gaze at this like weirdo to them yes but it's a weirdo who can like do the things they do and so like oh and now we can put this veneer of like respectability around it you know well and that also becomes the appeal of like oh the this person who is different than us is able to like read books and have conversations isn't that uh-huh. so like quaint and funny and interesting uh that this that this man can have like his own interiority and uh intellect what isn't that such a fascination for us to look at um and it's like it's also in this moment of the film that we get a dream sequence of um and we can i want to talk more about like aesthetically like what's going on in this movie in a minute but like the thematic stuff is like i think a little easier to pick apart at so i want to do that first um yeah like thematically i think it's really interesting we get a dream sequence where we see like the herds of elephants you know yeah and i i think it's really interesting lynch like walks right up to and i think doesn't ever quite pull the trigger on it but like, or maybe it leaves it up to you, the viewer, to make this connection. But like, the way that, like, like John Merrick is like a white person who is disabled. But like, British society would t- treat like any black person this way, you know? Like, yeah. it, it, at this moment, like. British society is is gleefully profiting from the slave trade and then also like you know oh look the you know the 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 peoples from darkest Africa actually are people too and we'll treat them as curiosities and not really see the sort of contradiction between <laughs> you know profiting from the slave trade and treating these people as curiosities and like like Merrick is in the movie is not like raced in this way, but it is very easy to make the leap from like the way that he is looked at to the way that like people are like racialized and, and viewed in a, in this racial way, you know? Yeah. Well, and also, and I don't think that like this movie is deeply about what I'm, I'm about to say, but like, you know, this is during the time of the ivory trade as well, which is like mm-hmm. going and killing elephants in Africa and and taking their tusks and using it for all sorts of things. Um, you know, in some ways, like part of what, and so th- this is the thing I'm going to point out, which is that like when this movie is made in the '80s, there are it like there has not been an international ban yet on the ivory trade um god i forgot that that was in 1989 i was born when they banned the ivory trade part of what enables banning the the ivory trade is the creation and um proliferation of plastics because plastics could replace a lot of the things that people would make ivory like out of ivory um it like enabled a, a a lower cost and like you know um thing that could, I, could every time i remember that like 
the the ban on ivory is so recent i get yes. like horrified all over again <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and so like the time when this movie comes out there are debates happening around ivory and the sale of ivory um mm-hmm. so like i i think that not that it's like strongly within this work, but I think it is also to to some degree informing some of the like use of the the elephant images here, and um, what you're saying about like tying it to slave trade and stuff like that as well. Um, like the, this movie is very intentional about the way that uh, Merrick is like, you know, there's like the very obvious and like very harsh slavery that he's enduring as part of this like freak show uh that it it has like no real care for his life uh he does like have a better life when he is in the hospital people are are taking care of him more than they did there uh but also Uh like the the approach that british society has to him has not fundamentally changed um yes they're materially he does live in better conditions than he did but like they have not solved the problem where, like, he is treated like an inhuman person. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and where, you know, and th- this is, I think, part of the sadness of the, the end, not to, like, get super far. Well, so one other thing before we get there that I think is uh, really interesting. There's a part where we were, like, ah, you know, kind of poking a little bit of fun at the movie because we see all of the things that it's doing. Um, we are like, ah, the British people are also just like coming to, to stare at him within like high society. Uh, it's just like changed the, the tone of it, but like, it's still the same action. And then there's the nurse who has been kind of like mean to him, you know, previously uh-huh. who then comes up to trees and is like, you're just like, owning this man to show off and better yourself too um like she like, says like what is you wh- how are you different yeah like she says the thing um, that we were saying yes um and you know she has not been like innocent in the way that she's been treating him either but she is she has been treating him in a different way which is like almost like this like very uh like hospitals at this time just seem like a bad place to be in general. <laughs> um, one, yeah. they haven't fully figured out how to like not get you sick when they do surgeries and things, but also mm. like it's commented on that the food is like not fit for adults, but they're feeding it to sick adults. Like what? Right. Um, all of that kind of stuff. And like, the nurses being like not they they are taking care of the patients but not in like a uh truly emotional way it's like very like i bring you food i change your bed and i'm like always kind of annoyed with you it's like the the vibe that you get um it's like this like very like doing the acts of like uh care in this like sort of pure sense but not in this like uh not in this emotional sense, but like in just like taking care of your physical bodily needs. I'm doing that. right. Um, and so having her be kind of like, not from this like super moral superiority uh, point, but is like 
approaching this man from her own station in society and then going up to Treves and being like, how are you that different? Um, I think helps it out because nobody is like free of sin, so to speak, in this movie. Uh, I mean, I, I guess aside from John Merrick himself, like he. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's yeah. The, the one person. I mean, I've, I found the, the and she's certainly not free of sin, but I found the, the nurse character really interesting because uh, for me, I think that she ends up like. By by the act of having to take care of him, like, ends up seeing John's humanity, like, way more than anybody else does. Because, like, yeah. she, has, she has a couple conversations with Anthony Hopkins about, like, hey, you're his doctor. You see him for 20 minutes a day and, you know, he is a curiosity to you. Like... I, I find the nurse so interesting because, like, she is this connection to, like, women have to do, like, the real labor of, like, you know, Anthony Hopkins, you come in and talk to him for 20 minutes. Like, we are the ones who, like, change his chamber pot, bring him his food, you know, like, ask him if he needs anything clean the damn room like you know that you see over the course of the the film like <clears throat> he starts in this um like th they start him in this isolation ward where it's just like a single bed and like no windows um and it sucks and it's shitty and he gradually like moves into like a much nicer room where he has a window um and um that room like gets like more and more decorated over time. And um like the nurses are the people like performing the labor that makes that happen. And I find that nurse character so interesting. Um in the way that she like you know one, I think that she sort of I think that she genuinely has like a change of heart about from her own like horror at seeing him to how she treats him at the end of the movie. And also, like, that change of heart is tied into, like, very gendered dynamics, you know? Gender yeah. and labor dynamics. This is the most Marxist David Lynch film. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I'm just being a jackass. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I find her, her... She's one of my favorite characters for the way that... Uh, I think she complicates a lot of the other stuff that's happening in this. Um, but yeah, definitely like the, the big thing happening at the end here is, um, you know, he, he f flees after being captured again by, uh, bites. Um, and in coming into to London is like chased and harassed, uh, has the big, uh, line that I remembered that I'm assuming lots of people remember from this movie of, I am not an elephant. I am not an animal. I am a human being. I am a man. Um, but when he collapses, the, the police take him back to the hospital, uh, goes to that performance. Uh, the, the theater is like this bizarre dreamlike space too. We do get, uh, yes. David Lynch loving the stage and, you know, what happens on the stage and weird dream hey, stage hey. stuff. Quick question. Yeah. I Banda? 
Uh, no. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Ivana. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it's just like a, a bizarrely avant-garde uh, theatrical performance for Victorian England. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought they were going to do like Shakespeare because there's a fucking electric scene because it turns out that when you get um, who I presume was like a famous uh, British actress and, and fucking John Hurt to read lines from Romeo and Juliet, it's fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Bancroft was the the woman, I think. Um, yes, um, and yeah, it the movie does just briefly detour into being the one um, audition scene for Mulholland Drive, where it's like normal movie, normal movie. Oh, now we're reading a script on the, you know, we're in the movie and we're reading a script and we're doing acting at each other and we're just you know flexing our muscles as actors and we're both you know fucking great. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and so then you sort of, I think, at that theatrical performance, when he gets the standing o- ovation, um, I think there is a certain dawning of, like, this is how I am always going to be viewed. Um, yes. I I am here, and they're saying, like, oh, this performance is dedicated to him, and then everyone is turning to look at me and clap and... Like, this is the thing that has traumatized me, and I'm just, like, being put into this situation as a, a wonderful little treat. I earned it, you know? Um, like, yeah. there's no r- real escape from from this, like, uh, fundamental difficulty that people have in, like, actually perceiving me as anything else other than, like, the elephant man. There's a there's a very intentional, uh, intentional thing in this movie, I think, where most people, whenever they say... His name, John Merrick, will then follow it up with, comma, the Elephant Man. Um, right. There are some time, like, it's not literally every single time, but it happens frequently in a way that uh, feels very intentional. Um, and so, you know, you then get this thing of him, like, he finishes the the little church model that he's building. Um, there's the the painting of a child sleeping in bed and then you know sleeps this way that he never could for one final time uh it's just like sad it's fucking sad um sorry and i <laughs> and it, like, I just it, realized it's established that I up until to... this point that he... yeah oh sorry no you finish what you're no, saying no I, I did a sharp intake of breath because i realized like who Anne Bancroft is, and I'm like lo- scrolling through her credits, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm a moron." <laughs> anyway, that's all. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was like, let me let me double check this because I feel like she was like a big actress. Anyway, um, she's very big. <laughs> I've seen her in many things. Yeah, <laughs> um, she's fucking Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> ignore me being a moron. Let's continue. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I feel like it's it's not like stated explicitly, but it's fairly established that like he is dying of um, you know, specifically um, uh, and this is it's I don't think it's ever named in the the 
movie, but like it has the symptoms, and I think this is what the the real person who uh, John Merrick is based off of, uh, Joseph Merrick, I believe, had as well which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, a thing that I had to get very familiar with because if I uh, didn't have asthma, I had, would have this. And it's a thing that just slowly kills you, um, where <sighs> you just get more and more shortness of breath and cough and, um, you know, just slowly worsens. Uh, there are ways to, like, slow it, but uh, you can't really reverse it. It is incurable. Um, and eventually there's just permanent damage to your lungs and you like can't breathe anymore um one of the things of me having asthma now i definitely should not smoke cigarettes much because not that i do right now but Mm. uh really raises your your uh likelihood of getting uh chronic obstructive pulmonary disease but um but yeah, he's he's showing like symptoms of like deteriorating health throughout all of this. Um so some of it is like who knows how much longer he would live, but there is this certain like uh choosing to to die in this moment and to die in a way that's like I've always wanted to sleep this way. Um that's Yes. One is sad, but also there's a sadness in it because uh for me watching it, um and it you know, M was saying you should watch the Enigma of Casper Hauser. Um, hmm. I've seen it before, but not for a while. But I feel like as a movie, um, the Enigma of Casper Hauser tries to like understand the way that this uh, child sees the world and like sympathize deeply with with his perspective as this perspective that is different than those around but like valid and to to focus in on that um and i think part of what uh like part of why i suspect if i go and rewatch that i will enjoy that movie more than elephant man if i'm remembering correctly that it is a little bit more focused on like how is it that this person sees the world um is part of the fundamental sadness to this ending too, is that uh, like John Merrick as well is also recognizing his own like desire to be a part of this society rather than like recognize for who he is in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. That he he has like throughout the film been happy uh, seemingly to to like perform high British society and to, to take part in all of this. Um, and a thing that he, he says early on, I think he even uses the word, which like, you know, I would say to, to sleep like someone who doesn't have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and cannot lay down properly. Uh, but I think he even says like sleep, like a normal person early on. Um, he uses right. that word like normal person. And this is like him getting to, getting to sleep like a normal child that he's seeing in a picture. Uh, and I think yeah. that's part of what makes the the ending even sadder to me is that like, it's not just him choosing to die, but also him like still wanting to be normal rather than um, having this like other sort of acceptance of himself and everything but also like i can understand the thing that always gets like tricky and and difficult with disabilities is that there are some disabilities that are just like this is how i am and this is like i want this to be like not just accepted 
or like uh taking care of in this sense or whatever but it's like actually a fundamental way of how i see myself and um should be like celebrated or uh should be like recognized um and then there are also some disabilities that like for people are just fundamental like if they could get them cured they would and i'm sure if john merrick could at least like get the chronic obstructive pulmonary disease part of it cured he would you know um Mm. and so i think that's one of the things that gets like kind of thorny with this ending um is there there's always a like a a tension with a, a lot of disability spaces between like um to what degree do people like want to maintain this as a a part of themselves to what degree are there disabilities that people do want to be free from and there's like a a, a difficult tension there and i think some of that is in this ending in a way where i'm not like this yes. ending's bad uh but it does add so much to the sadness of it that like it seems like his disability is also something in that that ending that he wished to some degree he could be free of um and that's like i think sadder than something that's going to be more like he he wants much much of this movie seems to be him wanting to be like recognized as a person in spite of his disabilities um mm-hmm. which is part of what makes it kind of a difficult watch for me but um yeah but again i understand not wanting to uh have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease because i also don't want right. it <laughs> yeah. um seems bad um, and, and, and I think from here, it's easy to sort of shift over into talking about, um, aesthetic stuff in the movie. And I also recognize that like you work in the morning and we're almost at the two hour mark and maybe <laughs> yeah. we want to wrap this up. Um, yeah, but like <sighs> this moment in the ending and and the other dream moments that we've gotten minus the the theater scene which um i think of as like a separate thing i think of that as just like david's fascination with the stage and not that it's insignificant to what i'm talking about but anyway those dream sequences are the moments that we get alone with merrick um yeah so so much of the movie is so concerned with um, other people's reactions to him that it is not until um, the dream sequence at the midway point and the dream sequence at the end that you get any sort of, like, privacy of, um, like, um, uh, Merrick's mind, you know? Um, and I think that's what makes... That's part of what makes the ending even more effective is that, yeah. like, these these are the moments that you get to, like, be alone with him and they're really fucking dark. Um, and I think yeah. also that um, – sorry, what were you going to say? No, nothing. I was just agreeing. Okay. I feel like we have a slight lag that's making this weirder, but – I think so, too. Like, I, I don't know what it is because I had the same thing with Kim on Pop Down. Um yesterday like just a weird tape delay or something anyway um 
It's fun. The dream stuff is so much fun in this movie just because, like, there's lots of moments where this is, like, the least lynchy lynch movie that I've seen anyway. Yeah. Um, But there's moments where you see, like, the lynchiness, like, poke through. You know, you just, like, and I, and I think generally the very, like, High contrast, um, you know, tripod, like, still shots of of actors acting um, in black and white. That is very lynchy in its own way. Um, but then the, the, the dream sequences show up, and it's just, like, the camera is, like, roaming through, like, ominous shots of, like, pipes and hospital walls and you just hear really loud metallic clanging noises and you're like oh david hello (laughs) yeah uh before that it's the kind of thing where you're like (laughs) it's fun i could see david lynch directed this um but also if it was some other director you'd be like yeah but when you get to the dream sequences you're like oh yeah david lynch did this (laughs) yeah like all, all these dream sequences are going to get reused for various parts of Twin Peaks in a very fun way. <laughs> yeah, um, it'll be a horse instead of an elephant. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I feel like I I've said the the one other thing, and I think this is something that like I want to comment on as we get to uh other things that deals with it. Um. Lynch, I will I will use the word maybe has a a problematic usage of uh people with disabilities in a lot of his works. Mm-hmm. Um, having seen the Elephant Man very early in my like journey with Lynch, um, I think it colored it in a way where I think some people have a a far more just like direct negative feeling about it. Um, whereas. I kind of approached a lot of it where I had a little bit more of mixed feelings about what was going on. Um, especially because, and it it happens in this film when, uh, uh, John Merrick is like rescued, uh, after he's been taken to, uh, France and is like helped to escape. Um, but there is a certain amount to which like, we, we will be able to talk about some of the, the ways that, things are um might feel problematic or or not quite right um but also like he's also employing a lot of uh actors with disabilities who often would not get cast in things um and so that's also kind of added to the complexity for me but as we go on like we hit ones i think we'll talk about it more in those contexts cuz i don't want to just like launch into vibes about how like you know, people with disabilities are used in Twin Peaks until we're, like, actually looking at that stuff. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, like, the Elephant Man coming early in his career, I think, um, has always made it more complex for me than I think it is for some people when they they see some of his other works. Um, Yeah. Not that it, like, Um, excuses any of the stuff that he's done. And I even talked about how this film has, like, like, weird tensions with it. Did I lose you? No, no. Okay. I th- I thought you were done talking, and then I thought I was interrupting, and so I got quiet. 
But I think you were done talking, but I just didn't hear you for a second. It's a whole mess. <laughs> yeah. Our connection's not great. We are recording remote uh, because I am still sick, maybe. I don't know if I'm contagious, but we're playing it safe. Yeah. Um, um, I guess suffice it to say, like, I guess I, like, I have thoughts about how this movie treats disability stuff, but they all tie into broader, like, David Lynch thoughts, and so maybe we should just table them until, A, we have a better connection, and B, we're, like, you know, talking about Twin Peaks proper, where I think, like, yeah. this stuff gets really thorny. <laughs> um, and where we're not tired and hoping to go to bed soon. Um, yes. Let's do plugs. Yeah. Uh, I think we got emails, but maybe we can do them next time. Or We definitely we'll... got emails, but I can't fucking hear you, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like the internet has been getting steadily worse as we're going, so. Um, yes. Everybody, please pester me to read your emails on the next podcast. Uh, our next episode is about Dune. Um, and so, so uh, feel... Yeah. Feel free to just remind me that you emailed about the Elephant Man. Um, and yeah, when, we'll get whenever to it we then. do the next call for questions. <laughs> um, I'll try to remember as well. Uh, we'll see how Dune works out because we might need to watch and record in the same night, and that's going to be rough. That's a long movie. Um, it's a long movie. We'll figure. You it know out, what's though. great about that movie is that it ends an hour in, but unfortunately, there is another hour left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Next time, Dune. Uh, you can find me at FoxMomNia on Twitter and co-host. Uh, go listen to my other podcasts. So there's Ghost Divers. Uh, it's an anime podcast with me and Connor. Uh, we When this episode comes out, which is going to be a little bit late, but not super late, uh, tomorrow we are recording the question bucket because, again, I was sick. Um but that'll be out on Friday. So if you're listening to this in the Patreon feed, uh, go listen to the question bucket on Friday. If you're listening to this in the free feed, it probably came out on a Tuesday. I'm not going to replicate the delay, uh, but then you can go back and listen to the question bucket about serial experiments lane. Um, we've gotten a lot fewer questions than I thought, just given the way that people reacted to, uh, I think some of it is just that my tweet was more inflammatory than the actual episode. But anyway, um, <laughs> people then actually listened to it and then didn't have as much to comment on. Uh, but anyway, that'll be fun. Um, and then also Pondering Putan is my other podcast with Connor, where we read through Cromarty High School, uh, basically the same rate that it was published in the weekly magazines. And uh, we talk about Cromarty High School or we we talk around Cromartie High School. Dubious. <laughs> yeah. The 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 podcast is always about Cromartie High School in that there is a style of humor that is inherent to Cromartie High School uh that is like the perfect Venn diagram of Connor and and my humor. Uh and so when we are doing a comedy podcast, we are always kind of doing Cromartie High School. Um but then sometimes we do actually talk about the manga. Not always, but sometimes. Um and maybe you'll be on that one. I think we're going to do the question bucket and then afterwards we'll do the uh, Puton and depending on how you're feeling, you can either just drop out uh, and we'll do it yeah, or you can hang around. Uh, we'll just play it by ear. So, um, But yeah, where can people find you? 
People can find me on Twitter at Autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at Autumnal. You can go to exportodd.io. That takes you to our Patreon page on the you know main landing page there. I've got links to all the free feeds, so you can listen there or you can send those to your friends if you want to, you know, help us out by spreading the word about the network. Or you can skip all those free feeds. You can just give us a dollar a month and you can get a bunch of shows early. You can give us five dollars a month and you can get Pop Town Funk. Um that's about it. I'm not going to do a longer spiel than that. Yeah. Um, look forward to the next Pop Town. Nora and I just recorded it, and it's not gone out yet. Oh, uh, Bag End Book Club just ended. Um, oh, yeah. We finished up The Silmarillion. We've read The Hobbit. We've read The Lord of the Rings. We've read The Silmarillion. So if you are a Lord of the Rings person, or if you know a Lord of the Rings person, send them exportodd.io slash club. Um. Yeah. And, and you know, we will we will start Mordor movie night soon. We're waiting for Nora's work schedule to get a little unfucked, um, among other things. Um, but while you wait for Mordor movie night, please enjoy um, Bag End Book Club. I uh, feel very like sad now that it's over, even though. I have no reason to feel sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, everyone is going to no go start another podcast now that it's over. Uh, except for Em, who's been very clear that they are happy to be free of having a podcast and is definitely not going to start another podcast. Um, so I think that's it. Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. <laughs> I'm hitting stop.